0: Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Well, if all of you are uh, still hunkered down, as most of the country still is, another week is gone by of quarantining, of stay-at-home, of shelter-in-place, whatever you want to call it, social distancing, physical distancing, the unnatural. But the necessary in some ways to avoid viral infection. And on this podcast, as your faithful American citizen, patriot, American Muslim, physician, I like to try to address the things that maybe people aren't addressing. And, you know, top of mind this week, I'm sure you've had, if you even turn on the television, I I can't even take more than a few hours at most, if not 30, 60 minutes of updates on COVID-19, on the data, because it takes a toll. And this is coming from somebody who my daily profession is dealing with healthcare, dealing with illness, bad news. Good news conveying to patients Sometimes the toughest information I can't imagine the toll it's taking on folks That want to return to normalcy That want to feel that sense of regular routine Get back to the normalcy of working Of family activities, of events of getting a paycheck, of helping other people through your service industries, entertainment whatever it might be. How far away is that? Will the government powers let us go back to work? And you know, I think as as many of us hope and pray that not one more life is taken, not one more life suffers. It is appropriate to have a conversation about the balance of proportionality. I've talked to you about this on this program before, but it continues to deepen, which is it's not a binary approach. Why is it that if we question authority, why is it that if we look back and say the models have been wrong, the models have way overpredicted in the 90% category, there was no ventilator crisis, though they would say, well, there wasn't because we mobilized. Okay, fine. But as we begin to learn, are we learning from our mistakes from two weeks ago, four weeks ago? And we're going to look at that timing in a second. But seriously now, it seems as if the people that disagree are being called conspiratorial wackos, fascists a minor minority, truthers. They're starting to be labeled by the mainstream as those who question authority. And again, they're going to do it, as we saw in the response to Islamist terror, they're going to do it sometimes dysfunctionally, sometimes focusing on what can be even more harmful mechanisms of dissent as we saw in the, in the war against radical Islamism and political Islam, their focus was on the faith rather than on the political ideology, and that caused a dilemma to which, if that became the mantra, the mission, strategy, if you will, then we would end up alienating a, a quarter of the world's population. But yet, pretending it had nothing to do with Islam also was submission. And as with any crisis, I've been talking to some conservative friends and, and non-conservative, non-partisan friends who say that it almost seems like we, we have a media, a government, a, a large institution element in America that goes beyond the government. Yes, in the government, there's those that have an or, organismal need to sustain the institutions, Some have called it pejoratively the deep state. Call it whatever you want, but it is the guts of the institution in which it has to self-prolong and self-fulfill its own destiny of existence, which it predetermined, rather than allowing, as in free markets, people's choices, people's decisions to allow it either to grow or to die in the vine. But government doesn't do that. Government... has its needs, and it is most pronounced in the organization of society against threats to our security, threats to our health. And yes, public health is one of those needs. But can the treatment of public health be limited to that which is only absolutely necessary and how do you determine that when you have a new virus, new data about transmission, new morbidity, mortality evolving week to week? Where even the most brilliant folks in our healthcare system at our NIHs and National Institute of Healths and National Institute of Infectious Diseases from Tony Fauci on down when they self-correct their own interpretations in data on a week to week basis. But yet, the industry, not only the government, but large medicine, large pharma, large healthcare, large corporate America, Fortune 500 companies, have also a self fulfilling need to maintain their own power structures, their own rankings, and investments. Some of that is pretty natural for free market, not any different than small business, but small business is much more elastic to price, responsive to supply and demand curves, while big business often depends on government subsidy, government protections. So as a result, crises management, they become this public-private partnership is not about Simply getting to the best place possible, public private partnership becomes a sustenance, a sustenance of each symbiotic existence. And we're seeing now, we're seeing now in this crisis that there is a symbiosis to large corporate America and large government. Governments printing money in order to correct. Something that it mandated. It it mandated the shuttering of businesses. So as libertarian as you might be, denying payments from government and saying that it's not government's role to subsidize business, to do corporate welfare, okay. But when the government forces us to shut our businesses, they better fix that. They can blame it on a virus. But they chose path A and didn't let free systems declare themselves free evolution of a spontaneous evolutionary process in which you maybe you could call it Darwinian had the government not involved, not interfered, and had the deaths gone over fifty, hundred, two hundred thousand, then they would have said this was an a a obviously discompassionate horrifically Darwinian process of evolution rather than one that America is based on, which is the protection of every life. Every life. But the protection of every life, we do so, and this is why terrorism attacks the West. It doesn't attack China. It doesn't attack Russia. Fascist, communist, collectivist regimes that don't give two hoots about a few lives that die here or there, but the West does. The West does care. America does care and therefore will respond to shuttering whatever possible in order to protect those lives. But we can't let that then become the bludgeon by which we destroy who we are. What are the firewalls? What are the red lines that we will not cross in which we determine that if our penultimate protection, let's say free speech, We've always said that, yes, we love the respect of religion and religious freedom as part of that first liberty, but free speech is also there. And religion is not a human being. It's not human rights. A religion is an ideology, so therefore free speech trumps the idea's rights because ideas don't have rights. Human beings do. So there's a way to balance that conversation. Some may disagree with that, many do, and have called for the equivalent of blasphemy laws in America and in the West, and we had that conversation in fighting against radical Islam and its permutations of political Islam. So now when we fight against the virus, what are the rights that trump other rights? We talk about the transmission from human to human of a virus and its rapidity and exponential growth needing to be cut off so that we flatten that curve. And so we flatten our economy. A few weeks is fine. But when the corrective mechanism of the flattening of the curve and the economy with it is not just two weeks, but four plus another four plus how many weeks? Because remember, it takes five to seven days for one person once they infect another for that other person to begin to have symptoms it takes another three to five days for that symptom to bear itself out so we're pushing two weeks now when that sickness when that patient either resolves begins resolving at home without a need to go to the clinics or the er or they start to get worse so Two weeks from exposure when they start to get worse and then they get admitted and, God forbid, worst case scenario, they get intubated and then they, God forbid, pass in another 7 to 10 days. Sometimes it's more rapid, but typically it's been another 7 to 14 days. So you're talking a total of four weeks from transmission to expiration. So we're looking at deaths and then we correct our our recommendations in our economy and opening of businesses, etc. And that corrective factor is already two to four weeks behind. And then we're told to wait another two to four weeks. And this is all under the premise that previous viral spreads can be compared to this one. When we're seeing things that are very peculiar to this virus with its contagiousness, how how many people with one known infected human being get infected near them. And then the number of asymptomatic seem to be impressively high. 50, 70 percent. Other countries are not showing resurgence of second, third spikes as there's concerns. Valid concerns. I see so many threats on Twitter and social media in which they say, oh, if you want to open America or open your state Every life that is lost will be your fault. Every life that's lost will be your fault. That's what's said. How can you manage a country that way? How can you manage a state that way in which every governor becomes risk adverse because they're being told that if they don't follow the recommendations that they will become the poster child of death and destruction from the virus. Reminds me of the practice of medicine. How often do we force or push or coerce patients into treatment because we don't want to later be told that we didn't do that, that we allowed the lawyers, the the litigation system will tell physicians that they let the patient die, even though they may have been Consented through information, informed consent about their choices and they chose not to do something. But then later, a family member who didn't hear the informed consent wasn't present, then wants to blame the physician. Patient may not have understood. Physician may have poorly communicated. Who knows? There are a million different options that could have happened. But the bottom line is is once somebody dies quickly, there's always somebody to blame. If you want to find blame. And if you want to find blame, there's a lot of that to always go around because you can't really prove the opposite other than looking at average life expectancy. And if your patient falls short of that, then you must have done something wrong rather than it simply being a normal statistical variation for that patient's expectancy. This is not to say that there aren't any errors and mistakes and lack of communication that happen in healthcare, but there's also the majority, which in the best healthcare system in the planet get treated with the best care possible. So as we approach the public health aspect, not on a case-to-case, but more majority-wise, as we approach millions of people being infected by this virus, what do we do with all this data and how do we approach it? Is there room for variability in decisions? Do all the states, we had 93% of American public under lockdown Is that the right way to have approached that? Should New York City have approached it the same way? Should uh, uh, Wyoming and Kansas have approached it the same way as New York City? Were there some markers that they could have begun to use early on? Or did they have to follow to the T the recommendations of their State Department of Health executives? I ask these questions because I have to tell you I'm I am very concerned about our ability to make the best decision, not to make a decision. We're making a decision I think based on risk adversity, being adverse to risk, and responding to gaslighting. Responding to gaslighting. Now, what's gaslighting? Remember, I've talked about that on this program before. Gaslighting is where somebody rages and rages and rages. About an issue, to where that becomes the focus, the obsession of the family, of the of the community. There may be some kernels of truth in that. There actually may be valid issues in what the individual that is raging about it wants to be treated. But the gaslighting creates a a such a usurp usurpation of the bandwidth that nothing else can be discussed. And I think we're seeing that in this. We're seeing it. there's no... uh, a, A World Health Organization that was a tool of the United Nations that was obsessed with dictatorships and obsessed with attacking the West, obsessed with attacking Israel because dictatorships ran it. It was a dictator's club and the World Health Organization was an arm of that. And now we see that the, as I talked to you last week about the Chinese communist pandemic, the CCP party, Chinese communist party, inappropriately addressed most, most of the processes. They delayed six weeks and then 12 weeks, and then they slowly leaked out information. The original physician that diagnosed it died. Now, he may have died from the virus, certainly. That's what they say. But we saw in SARS in 2000, the early 2000s, that China always lies, always lies. And to say somehow that uh, the the partisan politics that you hear someone like Senator, um, uh, the senator from Connecticut say that uh, China didn't do anything wrong. This was all Trump. Shows you the, it shows you the pathology of partisanship that we can't even have discourse about. So many of the things that have been inappropriately done internationally. The World Health Organization has not demonstrated that it has had anything beneficial. Yeah, there have been some data that we got from Americans that are working at the WHO, uh, as Huffington Post wanted to say this week. Uh, certainly, certainly. But to say that we're getting our money's worth and that we should continue to fund that, that's absurd. The World Health, if they really cared about World Health, would, would equally critique and appropriately critique the governments that fund it. Because it's about health, it's not about politics. and I, and and back to the the main thing i wanted to talk about is really we can now if you disagree and and what are we talking about is this binary most medical professionals agree that physical distancing that a, a increased uh um bandwidth in the media and and through medicine and healthcare to prepare for the increased spread of infection to prepare our ICUs to get into disaster management. All these things are very appropriate. The shutting down of massive gatherings at, at stadiums and concerts, very appropriate. Even a few weeks of a lockdown, appropriate, at least in my opinion. But how long? It's not trutherism. It's not trutherism to question whether it needs to go on beyond April 20th, April 30th max. We're seeing most of the curves come down, even in the sickest places. And yet the Governor Cuomo's of the world are saying, oh, but don't get complacent, etc. It'll come right back up. I saw physicians on MSNBC 100% sure. They said, I guarantee you the curve will go back up if people leave their houses. And the shelter-in-place stay-at-home orders are lifted this week. Really? How do you do that? How do you guarantee that? Even if people hadn't gotten infected, there's no data, there's no real understanding. Every few days, we're getting a new interpretation of the data. How do you know for sure that the normal transmission is going to happen with the normal spikes that we're seeing? The death rate just recently uh, reported. The mortality. Now we hear mortality rate and they keep comparing dead, numbers dead to diagnoses in the hospital of COVID-19 and positive tests, etc. So those three numbers, positive uh, uh, viral tests of COVID-19, admission diagnoses, and number dead. And that gives you a mortality rate if you take the number dead over the positive tests. And the mortality rates they're using from that are 1 to 3%. But mortality rate is related to number die versus number that get infected. You would have to test everybody in your population to know on a day-to-day basis and retest them every few weeks to know exactly what the mortality rate is. And recent randomized studies in the past few days show that so far, the mortality rate doesn't seem to be that much different than the flu. Now, is that heresy to say such a thing? Well, sure it is, because... It should be. We, it can't be compared to the flu. It appears so far that the patients that get sick are getting much sicker with not only pulmonary edema, pulmonary hemorrhage, myocarditis, arrhythmias, organ shutdown, and it seems that m- many of them, the ventilators, just aren't helping, which is something to the level that we didn't see with influenza in the past. So yeah, the comparison is not virus to virus. All I'm talking about is if you compare mortality data so far. So we should be able to tone down the gaslighting, tone down the hysterical approach to those who may question what's best for our society, and begin to approach this as an academic Balanced American way, which is one in which we entertain every idea and every debate, and then we decide as a country how to move forward without punitive blaming that no matter what happens, one side gets it. And you know, I have to say it, the part I don't get is why is one side of this equation on the offense and one side on the defense? At what point did the lives. That are lost from COVID be offense versus the lives lives lost from heart failure untreated. sir. Elective surgery, urgent surgeries that aren't done. Gallbladders that rupture as they wait. Appendices that rupture. Yes, that's an emergent surgery. But what if it's thought to be sort of semi-urgent to come to the ER and then they die at home? How many of those cases are going on? It's enough to where many of the governors are passing legal waivers to protect physicians from liability for making these decisions, to protect hospitals from liability. So at what point does the offense be in this conversation, on the offense being the protection of the COVID-19 lives, and yet the lives that are mitigated from economic losses, psychiatric losses, from inability to pay for their med, diabetes out of control, arrhythmias, kidney failure caused by uh, uh, dialysis that are missed, etc. I had a patient the other day in which it became hard to get him to his regular dialysis. I had another patient that needed the defibrillator that was, was told that this is elective and can wait till July. Ejection fraction, low ejection fraction in the heart, higher risk for arrhythmias. And if he has an arrhythmia waiting, I could easily also take the offense on that conversation and say in an offensive way to the COVID lobby. And I can't believe we divide it this way. American health is not divided by lobbies. It is actually by lobbies of diseases. We see this. But, and I think that does create, actually it's interesting, that does create a pathology, doesn't it? When you have a, cancer lobby, a breast cancer lobby, and you have a heart failure lobby, and you have a heart association lobby, an arthritis lobby, a, and a lupus lobby, and they're all fighting for the same dollars, trying to prioritize based on work days lost, morbidity, mortality, and eventually the government makes a decision and does prioritize, as does physicians and our work, etc., and how we address these things. And we try to do the best we can, but God knows we make mistakes. And God knows our society makes mistakes as we approach these things. But we tolerate it because we're human. And yet the approach to the COVID-19 pandemic seems to not be tolerated for any mistakes or or proportional decisions that are being made. It's simply all about gaslighting. And it actually seems to be about, here's the crux of it about a media complex, an industrial governmental complex that's based on crisis, feeds from crisis to crisis. I was in the Navy, served aboard ship. As we deployed, as we did operations... We constantly understood that whatever might happen in one corner here or there, with whether it's health or whatever, sometimes we made operational decisions and decided to change course if we had to based on the severity of what was before us, if we could not, and if there was other people to do what we were supposed to do. But we also did not let compartment problems affect the mission, affect the duty to Navy, the duty to our CEO. And that's a principle we apply in democracy, in our families, and every aspect of life, is that we balance things and then we make decisions. And yet if you have a society that is using those who gaslight the most with an industrial complex of an establishment that that is is based on on fueling and throwing gas on crises with it not one toleration because once the crisis becomes inflamed then it becomes everything anybody not inside that that circle and I saw the best diagram it was three circles one circle was about covid-19 and those who want to prevent every loss of life from that, as I do. The second circle was people worried about expansion of authoritarian government policies. And the third circle was people very concerned about impending economic devastation. And my good friend who put that graphic out has the word me in the intersection of all three. You can, you can take COVID-19 seriously while also being afraid of the expansion of authoritarian government policies, unchecked, and also being concerned about impending economic devastation. All three can exist in the same person. And no, you're not some type of fringe white supremacist if you care about the expansion of government and you're some kind of uh, uh, hashtag what what is the hashtag this week on Florida? Florida stupid or I can't remember what it was what offensive hashtag because people wanted to go to the beach. Okay, fine. Beaches might be uh, uh, dangerous if you're if you're gathering in mass gatherings, but going on a lake and a boat with a couple people, going on a beach or walking in in, in where you have good distances between people, that is not dangerous. It's absurd to lock people in their houses with this. It just doesn't make any sense. At least to me. Because eventually they're going to have to have contact and we they're going to have to spread and get a herd immunity. We're not going to lock down our country for 18 months until we get a virus vaccine. It's hard, you know, I... I, I try to put my finger on what created the, mon- the 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 conventional wisdom that somehow if you want to start talking about opening the economy that you don't care about every breath that's affected by COVID-19 that just does not make any sense all of our patients breaths are equally concerning if it's been taken from normalcy because of heart failure or because of COVID, to see small practices, medical practices suffering and on the verge of shutdown, many of them, as they struggle to get SBA loans. By the way, many of the SBA loans were sucked up by what? Large hotels and restaurants. Large. Fine. That's they all. They were suffering. That's fine. But it was supposed to be for less than 500 employees. And somehow they were at the front of the line. The smaller businesses did not get them. And that's why they're doing a second tranche now. Necessary. Absolutely necessary. And again, politics is slowing it down. At the end of the day, if anybody tells you they have the right answer, you should be skeptical. I don't know if I have the right answers. I just know that it is... Not sustainable, it is creating a mechanism in which we are going to destroy the lives of tens of millions now over twenty million are on unemployment, and it is going to go up and if unemployment, if you look at the checks they get that that cannot afford health insurance, and their health care is going to just spiral alcoholism will go up, tons of things are going to go bad, criminalism is going to go up, crimes, et cetera, will increase. As people don't have the sustenance to move forward. But hey, they didn't get that COVID. So we have to have an understanding of what are the choices we're making. And they may be right or wrong. But at least, at least we made and had a balanced conversation. We didn't gaslight ourselves into silence. Not to mention, you know, we talk in medical ethics about... Natural order You know, when I talked to you I think it was five, six months ago About assisted suicide I said, you know, there's a natural aspect to God determining The moment that soul gets put into the body And the moment it leaves And I talked about Yeah, there's doctrines of double effect Where we might give something for pain But it might hasten the end of life But our intent is all that matters Our intent So if religiously you believe that intent is all that matters, that's the basis of common law in the West. It's based on intent. So if religiously you believe that intent is the primary issue in law, if our intent is to care for the most Americans by providing them the ability to care for themselves economically and also all their other medical problems, and you balance that with the decision to initially prevent the acute spread exponentially of the virus, but not necessarily treating it as, at 100%, but maybe at 85%, 80%. It's not binary. You treat it at 80 85%. And then you allow the other parts of the health of our society to continue because things are going to be bad. You know, one one of the obesity specialists hit the nail on the head. She said, "People are running to grocery stores with masks and things on, and I see them jamming, jamming cakes and Doritos and chips and and all these donuts, et cetera, into their cigarettes, <laughs> into their carts, all in the name of and and they go with gloves and masks, socially distanced." Okay. Understanding there's a vector that they could be, and they're preventing that. So it's not just about their own health, but others, but still, lives lost. Are we doing the same for other diseases? I don't think so. Not with the same bandwidth and gaslighting. Last. Let's change topics a little bit. In this era now of telehealth and Zoom meetings, and we find that religious facilities are doing alternative forms of congregational prayers—not from the pulpits, not from the not from the uh, pews, but rather from cars or from home or whatever it might be. This week, the BBC announced that it was going to allow prayers. The call to prayer on their world service on Fridays. The call to prayer, and the Saudi news outlets praise that as a, a exemplary ecumenism. Exemplary. Listen, I'm I'm Muslim, and I uh, not only relish in doing my prayers, but also feel something deeply spiritual and and fulfilling and hearing that call to prayer. Not only in our house when we do our congregational group prayers, but on Fridays. Our mosque has elected not to have congregational prayers. And soon, before the next podcast, we're going to be entering into Ramadan, the holy month of fasting for 30 days. Muslims will fast from sunrise to sunset and remember the Quran and read 1 30th of the Quran every night If they can in their Tarawih prayers Or evening prayers in Ramadan And a lot of this I know our community is going to be doing it from home Through Zoom, whatever it might be As the Jewish community did with its Passover First Passover in which The services were done for the vast Vast, every Jewish congregation that I knew Did it from home through Zoom or whatever it might be their Seder dinners. But my problem is not with the Adhan on the BBC. But I asked the question, nobody's responded. Are other faiths getting their call to prayers? How many, how many faiths exist and do they get equal time? I worry that a Muslim community in which the Islamists are trying to hijack our community with the identity politics of Islamism, political Islam, and otherwise, if they feel they're getting special treatment, especially in times of crises like this, then they will use that to further divide and say that they've been successful in representing Muslim needs, Muslim interests, and Muslim religious worship. Because I don't see that as part of religious freedom, as having the state news network have our call to prayer on Friday. In America, should NPR do that? Should PBS do it on their television stations and have a half an hour of Muslim prayers on Fridays? Then they need to do it on Sundays. They need to do it on Fridays, a Friday evening for Shabbat services for Jews, and then the Sikh services and the Hindu services and the Zoroastrians and every other faith. So I'm concerned. And I think it's a healthy amount of concerns. It doesn't mean I'm anti-Muslim. It means I love my faith, and I want my identity politic to be about Americanism, not about a political stripe or an idea, but about Americanism and our ideals under the Constitution. And that's what we were talking about earlier in the program, wasn't it? About the way to fight the virus and what are some principles we should never cross and then take the price that it costs, Yes, it's not ideal rep- respect for Muslims by not having the prayer, but it's a way to separate mosque and state to prevent political Islam, and it doesn't affect their worship. They have, we have our own mechanisms of spreading our daily prayers and our houses of worship. We don't need the governmental news agency to do it to have our religious freedom. It's nice, it's a good gesture, but it's not necessary unless they're going to do it for everybody. And then that turns the state news agency into an interfaith festival week to week. So I hope we can get more balance going forward. I hope we can step away from the gaslighting. Yes, we all get angry during crises, but we need to have some balance. What if our leaders just said, I don't know. Let's discuss it and then we'll move on. We might make some mistakes, but I don't know. Let's have an adult conversation and not blame everyone. But I can tell you, I was talking about the natural aspects. I'm going to end on this. And about assisted suicide. It is unnatural to keep people so physically distant for so long. Okay, we need it for a few weeks, but eventually... I disagree with those doctors that think we're not going to shake hands anymore. We're not going to hug anymore. I hug my patients, many of them. I hug my friends. I shake their hands. I'll wash my hands more frequently, absolutely. I've learned a lot of good lessons of discipline that many of us have. But I'm not going to stop shaking hands. It's unnatural. What makes us human is the physical need to share, to, to embrace, to be emotional, to to understand empathically what our fellow human beings are going through. And you can't do that from a distance. You can't. This is Zudi Janser. Stay safe, stay strong, and help us reform the things that need to be reformed. This is Zudi on Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, Dr. Zudi Jasser, and at Reform This Radio. God bless. See you next week. Reform this with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.